Okay, folks, uh, turn to Jeremiah, if you would, Jeremiah chapter 23. Uh, this morning I want to spend some time uh, looking at the issue of a canonicity, <laughs> um, specifically the formation of the Old Testament canon. Uh, about three or so years ago, um, I taught a, it was a single lesson on the issue of New Testament canonicity, how we got our New Testament. Did not make hardly any comments at all about the Old Testament. And so uh, I thought it would be good to come back to this topic and uh, to do that um, uh, today as well as for next Sunday, just kind of getting us into the flow of where we're going with Song of Solomon. Um, as I've been getting sort of prepared to teach uh, Song of Solomon, I've had to sort of, you have to kind of wade through, unfortunately, so much bad stuff um, in the way of commentaries and in the way of, of study materials. I've got about 16 or 17 different books that I'm currently trying to juggle and, and just get into to some extent before we get started uh, in a couple of weeks, sort of walking through that chapter by chapter. Uh, but it just strikes me as you get into, you know, you start reading, when you're starting a new series like this, and you get into those books, and you're just seeing what, you know, these scholars and these theologians have to say. I'm just amazed how sinful men are so bent on undermining and attacking the authority of Scripture, um, attacking and really drowning out uh, the truth. And as I've been getting into this book specifically, Song of Solomon, uh, you run into all kinds of disputes. I mean, there's disputes about should Song of Solomon even be in the Old Testament? I mean, is it even canonical? Should it be a part of the Old Testament canon? Um, certainly there's a lot of discussion about the dating of the book, uh, which is tied to... Um, uh, the the author of the book, you know, did did Solomon write, dealt with some of these same things back in Ecclesiastes, right? I mean, Ecclesiastes, it says it's written by the king of Israel. <laughs> it says Solomon wrote it, but there's this, this immediate uh, presupposition that so many people have that, well, that couldn't be true. And so, and part of that goes to the fact that most people believe, or many of those folks believe, that the Old Testament was written and put together very late. Um, so we're talking about maybe 100 to 200 years B.C. So they just don't believe that Solomon, back in his era, experienced those things and wrote those things down, but that someone came much, much, much later than Solomon and wrote those things maybe about Solomon, maybe not, but decided it would be whatever, I don't know, humorous or for whatever effect would say that it's written by Solomon, even though it actually wasn't. And, and so you just you come across these things, all the time, uh, this whole attack on, uh, on, on Scripture, a whole, whole attack on inerrancy and inspiration. Uh, Dr. Zemick down at the Expositor Seminary, he was in town uh, a week or so ago, and, and I just, he, was, he was leaving the office, and I just caught him out on the sidewalk and said, Hey, uh, Dr., Dr. Z, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be jumping into Song of Solomon <laughs> soon. Do you have any good recommendations on commentaries? And he just sort of smiled, like, and he said, good luck. <laughs> so I'm thinking, okay, here's one of the, 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 the brightest uh, Old Testament guys that I know, godly man, and he's, he's telling me, you know, hey, Joel, good luck. I mean, it, it wasn't all that encouraging for him to say that. Um, but 
he just knows. I mean, you know, uh, the difference between him and I is he knows all those books that I'm reading and then he can tell you on the top of his head, you know, what year they were written and who the authors were and all those kinds of things and what's in the footnotes on page 56 kind of stuff. So sharp guy, but um, he was, he just said, you know, good luck with that. And, uh, and his main advice was just stick to your hermeneutics. Just, just walk through it using, you know, using the tools. You're probably not going to find a lot of help out there on it. Um, so it's, it has been a challenge, to say the least, to sort of get ready to sort of get this framed up for you guys to, to jump into that particular, that particular study. And again, we ran into these same kind of concerns looking at Jonah and, when we, you know, their views of Jonah. Did Jonah actually write this? We went to Nahum, you know, is this something that was, should, should Nahum even be considered a part of the minor prophets and a part of the Old Testament? Um, and as I said, we, we dealt with these things in the book of of Ecclesiastes. So we certainly could just jump in today, verse 1, and go, but <laughs> I felt like there would be, I would be jumping in, and then I'd be turning right around going, oh, I know it says that Solomon, but, and then having to go back and, and deal with some of these issues. So let's, we're just going to lay that groundwork, and, and again, my prayer really is that it just bolsters, bolsters your confidence in the book that you're holding this morning. I mean, bolsters your confidence in the Word of God and its authority for your Christian life. So uh, so before we kind of launch into Song of Solomon, I want to take today and next, next Sunday to look at our Bibles and how our Bible came to be what we believe it to be, um, God's, God's inspired word. Now, uh, the English, we have can- canonicity. I, I just, man, Randy got me thinking about this whiteboard thing over here. So I'll just utilize it. Like there's a lot of stuff up there that has nothing to do with our class, uh, so don't get distracted by using a number two pencil and layered paintings. Uh, I've just got a few notes down here, uh, and I'll we'll use this as sort of a, an outline in a minute, but the, old, the English word canon um, is really a translation of, of two, uh, sort of comes from two words which so, sort of sound the same. The Hebrew term is kane, uh, the, the, the Greek word is kanon uh, from kana, which means simply a rod uh, or a stick or uh, you might say a, a measuring stick, a yardstick, uh, a straight rod. So it was used for uh, essentially for for, for measuring. Uh, it, it's actually the, the the origin of the English word. We get our word cane, right? So canon, we get and use a cane. It's that it's an idea concept of of a rod or, or a stick. Usually, when we speak of that, when we speak of the canon of Scripture, we're speaking of Scripture as the measuring rod of all truth. So we're saying that the Scriptures uh, are the the rule, or the ultimate, or the unchanging, or the perfect standard for the faith for our Christian lives. Uh, the phrase also refers to the books uh, which properly belong in the Bible. Uh, the inches, as it were, on, on the yardstick. So if you omit um, uh, one of those <laughs> inches or you add one of those inches, then, then you're, you're changing the yardstick, right? It's, it's not a yardstick anymore. I was at the gym yesterday and I noticed they had one of these things where you, you were measuring people's height, but there was a platform off off the floor, so you stepped up onto the platform, where the platform was a couple of inches off the ground, and so I was just checking to see that this thing, that it made the proper adjustment. In other words, that the measuring began at the level of the platform and not all the way down to the ground, right, because you could be off by, by a couple of inches. 
So it's important that we, we think about the canon. I mean, this is a huge deal. I mean, do we have less than what we ought to have, right, for a Bible? Or, or do we have more than what we should have? Or are you know, there are other things that we should be adding to the canon? Is the canon still open? Is the canon closed? Those kinds of things. Now, most of us here, I assume, believe that the Bible is in, that it's the inspired, infallible Word of God. Therefore, it's important to know just which books belong in the Bible and which books do not. And that is where canonics or excuse me, canonics comes into play. Canonics is the science uh, of determining which whole or partial books are authentic, or, or in other words, are are inspired. And understanding which writings are from God is, is extremely critical. We want to know which writings are from God because those writings, Paul told Timothy, they make us wise unto salvation. Right? This is a big deal. Uh, these writings make us wise unto salvation. John 17, right? They sanctify us. Okay, we're sanctified by the truth. They are profitable for us. They are our only rule for faith and for practice. And we must pay attention to their message, which is divine. In fact, when Jesus was tempted by the devil, you remember this back in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was tempted by Satan to the to tempter to turn stones into bread, Jesus answered in Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So, it's important for us to know which writings are from God and the ones that are not. Because God's people must never submit to uninspired words of men as if they have that same kind of authority. Right? Now, we're we're t- I'm going to give you there're going to be some obvious heretical examples of this in a minute, but uh, these that sometimes slips into our thinking as well. Right. I mean, we like to read after certain people. Um, we like to listen to certain people. Sometimes we hold things or hold individuals or hold writings up sometimes higher than we ought to. Um, or you could flip it around and say we don't hold Scripture high enough right, in comparison to all those other things. But just to kind of get us thinking here, I wanted to read just, just read it really, uh, Jeremiah chapter 23, because this to me just sets the tone for, for this whole Discussion. Verse 9, Jeremiah 23. As for the prophet, my heart is broken within me. All my bones tremble. I have become like a drunken man, even like a man overcome with wine because of the Lord, because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers. For the land mourns because of the curse. The pastures of the wilderness have dried up. Their course also is evil, and their might is not right. For both prophet and priest are polluted. Even in my house I have found their wickedness, declares the Lord. Therefore their way will be like slippery paths to them. They will be driven away into the gloom and fall down in it. For I will bring calamity upon them the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. Moreover, among the peoples of Samaria I saw an offensive thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people Israel astray. Also among the prophets of Jerusalem I have seen a horrible thing the committing of adultery and walking in falsehood, and they strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me like Sodom and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I am going to feed them wormwood and make them drink poisonous water, for from the prophets of Jerusalem pollution has gone forth into all the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, for uh, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, The Lord has said, You will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say calamity will not come upon you. But who has stood in the counsel of the Lord that he should see and hear his word? Who has given heed to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord has gone forth in wrath, even a whirling tempest. It will swirl down on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and carried out the purposes of his heart. In the last days you will clearly understand it. I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have announced my words to my people and would have turned them back from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places? So I do not see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord. Uh, it's, it's, that's a pretty severe warning. And it's a warning on two sides. It's a warning that, that these people that were considered to be spokesmen for God were not telling the people what God said <laughs> on one hand. On the other hand, they were going and running and talking and speaking about other things, right? So they're, they're not just not giving people the word of the Lord, they're coming up with their own words and saying that it's from God. And God is just saying, listen, don't listen. Don't listen to this. I didn't send those people. We'd love to think that that's just going on back then, right? But that is, that's going on today, is it not? I mean, are we not seeing that in the church today where people are preaching messages and Three minutes of the 25-minute message has scripture, and then the rest is just a bunch of illustrations and stories and and whatnot. Uh, The church failing today, not just to say this is what is said, but then saying other things, right? Just filling in that time with the the thoughts of man, right? Just the, the plans of man. These are just man's unauthoritative, imperfect fallible words and and ideas. And yet people are flocking, right? They're flocking to hear these things, right? Because they're they're not being offended, right? There's no offense when when, when people in the church hear those kinds kinds of messages. But according to Jeremiah... When you speak the word of God, that speaking God's word should wake you up to your sinfulness, right? It should it should stir you up about your true condition and about the true character of God. That God is a God that's near, right? It's as if God's saying, "You've been listening to these messages, and you know what you've actually thought. You know what you've concluded by listening to all this stuff is that God is not not near. God doesn't God doesn't see these things. God doesn't care about these things." These, those, whatever you're doing in your life is not important. Whereas the message from the Lord was God's very concerned about what you're doing. 
he's very concerned about your ethics. He's very concerned about your morals. He's very concerned about how you treat people. He's very concerned about your faithfulness to his truth or your lack of faithfulness to his truth. So it's a, a pretty significant warning. I think it's very applicable today. In the New Testament, we have similar warnings, warnings that God's people not allow their faith to be compromised by any philosophy, which is after the tradition of men. You see this in, in Paul, Paul says in Colossians 2.8, Christ himself condemned those who invalid, were invalidating the word of God. They were erasing. It's as if they had a big eraser. All these, all these religious elites had this big eraser, and they were erasing what God had to say with their traditions. So they had that, that, that big eraser, they had a big bucket of whiteout, and they're, and they're getting rid of God's words, and then they're writing in <laughs> on top of that, right, what they, what they think and what they want to say, attempting to make the word of God invalid. Uh, human philosophy and traditions have no place in defining the Christian faith because the message of the Christian faith is rooted in, and it is... It is circumscribed, meaning it's, there's parameters put on our Christian faith by God's own revealed word, not authoritative words of men. So where is God's word found? Well, Hebrews 1 helps us here. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. You may be familiar with this, this uh, passage here. Just these two, first two verses, he, the writer of Hebrews says, God, after he spoke long ago to the Father, in the prophets, very, very, very important. God spoke long ago to the fathers, literally to, to our fathers, our forefathers. God spoke to them by the prophets, okay, through the prophets, uh, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways. In these last days, verse 2, has spoken to us in his son, Appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So God verbally revealed himself in many ways. He verbally did that from his personal address to Adam, uh, from his personal address to to Abraham, for instance, uh, to the inspired preaching of Jonah or of Amos or of Ezekiel. God also sent his word in writing to his people. From the tablets of the Mosaic Law to the written message of Isaiah or, or Jeremiah. Now, even the Word of God, which was originally delivered orally, needed to be reduced to writing in order for us to know about it and for it to function as an objective standard for faith and obedience. So God was revealing Himself orally because we know of these, and we know we don't have all of those sermons, right? We don't have all of those prophecies. We have some of them. But at the, in the end, we wouldn't, we wouldn't know, right, unless these things were written down. So that's, that's the significance of us having an, an Old and New Testament in front of us today. So uh, we needed that. It needed to be in writing. In fact, this is how false prophets were... Uh, uh, ex- exposed. This is how, how the, uh, the word of false teachers was to be exposed. It was exposed by the previously inscribed law. So we see this back in Deuteronomy 13 um, or in written testimony. Isaiah 8, 8 mentions this. So it, it, was, it was important to have the 
these scriptures, these writings, because the people, the people had a responsibility to guard against false teaching. And the method of doing that was to take the previously inscribed write, these writings and to take those current prophecies, right, by, by teachers and people claiming to be prophets and to just compare the two, right? So this guy comes and he comes into town and he's got this message. Well, how do we know if he's a false teacher? Well, one of the ways we know is we go back to what's been written, right? So there's this assumption in the Old Testament that that's what the people of God would do. They would use previously written the, the text of the Old Testament as a way to measure and to gauge whether this prophet was from God or not. Now, the most ex- magnificent expression of God's Word was found, as this text tells us in Hebrews, was found in the very person of Jesus Christ, who is called himself in Revelation and in John 1, the Word of God. But all that we know of Christ is dependent upon the written Word of the Gospels and other New Testament writers or other New Testament books and letters by men such, by men such as Matthew, Mark, or the Apostle Paul. So, Jesus Christ commissioned certain men to act as his authoritative representatives, his apostles. They spoke for him, so they carried his message uh, in such a way that in Matthew 10.40, Jesus says, He who receives you receives me. Okay, So that's the authority that these apostles carried. They were speaking on behalf of God and on behalf of Christ. It's noteworthy, however, that, that the oral preaching and teaching of the apostles themselves were to be tested against the Old Testament scriptures, right? So th- this, is what's, well, this is what is seen in, in Acts when Paul commends the Bereans, right? So even when we get to the New Testament and these apostles are, have not written anything necessarily yet, but they're preaching their message, their oral message was to be compared with what was revealed in the Old Testament, right? So again, that dependency, not just on what was orally delivered, but specifically on what was inscribed, what was written. And there's this, this, so this, this issue of comparing back to previously you know, written revelation is a pattern that begins all the way back in the books of Moses and goes all the way through the New Testament. And Paul commends the, 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 uh, the Bereans for for testing, essentially, what he is saying against Old Testament revelation. So, which makes you want... People had more familiarity with the Old Testament than we may sometimes give them credit for. Um, You know, I think sometimes we think, oh, these first century Christians, I mean, what did they know? I mean, these just sort of common folk. Well, according to what we see in the New Testament, these people actually had a pretty good understanding of what was in the Old Testament. And Jesus himself, remember, rebuked a lot of the religious leaders by saying what? Well, haven't you read? Well, you've read this. Well, don't you understand? Don't you know these things? So his assumption was that there was a, there was a, 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 a fairly large, uh, stout understanding of, old, of the Old Testament. So what, what the apostles themselves wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was be accounted as the very word of the Lord, and came to have for the church the same authority as, 2 Peter 3.16 says, as the other scriptures. Okay, so already in, in the day of the apostles, 
as the apostles were writing, there was a recognition among the apostles in their lifetime that these things that were being circulated were being viewed as authoritative as the Old Testament. So that's why Peter warns. He's like, listen, that Peter are twisting Paul's words. Well, how did Peter know that? Well, because Paul was writing letters and they were being circulated. So Peter's saying, listen, people are twisting God's People are twisting Paul's words and Paul's writings and Paul's teachings just like they do the rest of the scriptures. And what is he referring to when he says that? He's talking about the Old Testament, right? So I'm saying there's this, there, again, there's this misunderstanding, I think, that it took the church several hundred years to figure out what was the basis for our Christian faith. You know, as if some council in the fourth century decided this is the New Testament canon, and the church went, we're so glad you finally figured that out because for 400 years we've been struggling to know what we should be doing and how we should be living and what we should be believing. When in actuality, it seems by the New Testament itself that its testimony is that there was already an understanding when the apostles were still alive that the church should be seeing these writings on par with Old Testament revelation. Okay, So this teaching of the apostles was, was received as a body of truth, which was a criteria for doctrine and life in the church. This apostolic de- deposit formed a pattern, Paul talks about this, a pattern of sound words for the church, which was to be guarded as the standard for the Christian life and for all future teaching in the church, 2 Timothy 2.2. A deposit or a tradition, not in the sense we, we use the term tradition, not in the, not in the way that Jesus referred to the tradition of men, but just saying there was a, Paul himself used this term, this term in uh, his letter to the Thessalonians of this tradition. It was just, a, for him it was synonymous with saying this doctrine or this teaching or this instruction. But these things were, were to be, uh, this, this deposit or this tradition was to be, um, uh, guarded, it was to be seen as a standard for the Christian life, and um, and was found in both oral instruction, because again the apostles were teaching orally, but also in written epistle form, which is obviously only available to us today. Right, so the only only part we have of that is the written. So it's just like the Old Testament in a sense that there were other, there were there were oral, there was oral teaching, oral prophecies. There were, there were these messages that the prophets gave to the people, but we only have a portion of them in our Old Testament canon. The New Testament canon is very similar in that we know that the Apostle Paul had a lot more to say than what we have here in the New Testament. But this is what we have in our New Testament canon. In other words, the only, the only way we would know that is, if, is by these particular writings, those things that went from oral instruction into that written form. So we have the faith, as it's called in the New Testament, the, the, the teaching content of the Christian faith that was once for all, as Jude 3 says, delivered to the saints, and all claims to convey an additional revelation are false claims. Okay, so as you get through the New Testament, as you come to the end of it, there's, there's this understanding that this, the canon is closing, right? That there's not going to be all this additional revelation that's going to come after 
the book of Revelation. In fact, that's why I think the book of Revelation gives its warning at the very end about adding or taking away from from not just, I think, that particular prophecy, but really in a more comprehensive way, just to say, this is, this is it. The canon is closed. Jude's already saying, this has been past tense delivered. So this body of teaching is already being comp- compiled, understood by the church in such a way, again, at first John, John could say, that if someone comes teaching that Jesus was simply a man, you just compare what these preachers and these teachers are saying in light of what we have, what the what the apostles have been teaching you, and what was already beginning to come together in in a written, a written form. So, all claims to convey that there, there's more revelation to come are simply, uh, simply false <coughs> claims. So the Christian faith is defined by all of Scripture, right? Not just parts of it, but it's defined by all of Scripture, but only Scripture. Which we, which we may not add anything to or subtract anything from, lest our doctrine and conduct be governed by a defective standard. Okay? So again, extremely important. Which brings us to the question of what literary works ought to be recognized as the Word of God. The question of the canon. Now one, one note, one very important note, note I think to keep in mind here. Uh, the legitimate authority of canonical books exists independently of their being personally acknowledged as authoritative by any person or group. That is to say that the nature or the grounds of canonicity is distinct from the history or the recognition of canonicity. It is the inspiration of a book that renders it authoritative. So a book, a book is... is um, a book's inspiration is not dictated or determined by our recognition that it is inspired. Does that make sense? So the church doesn't declare that a book is inspired. We, we, we might believe that it's inspired, but our declaration does not make it inspired. If it's inspired, it's inspired whether the church recognizes it or not. Does that make sense? So if God has spoken... What he says is divine in itself regardless of the human response to it. It does not become divine through human agreement with it. And when we understand this, we can see how erroneous it is to suppose that the corporate church at some council of its leaders voted on certain documents and constituted them the canon. The, the church cannot subsequently attribute authority to certain writings. It can simply receive them as God's revealed word, which as such always has been the church's canon. Authority is inherent in those writings from the outset, and the church simply confesses this to be the case. So the nature of canonicity is distinguished from its recognition, and the canon is not identical with special revelation. In other words... In order for a book to be accounted as is canonical, it is necessary that it be inspired, but inspiration isn't a sufficient condition for canonicity. Otherwise, all of God's special revelation would, would constitute the canon of the church. Yet that's not the case for obvious reasons. First, we know that not all special revelation was given in written form or later committed to writing. 
So we have, for instance, examples, many, many discourses by Jesus that he made while on earth, but we don't have all of those, right? Um, you've got um, John 21, right? John 21, 25 actually says, I mean, we could fill, we could fill up a, a bunch of books, right, about all the things that Jesus did and taught. Uh, we have private revelations to the apostles. You remember the apostle Paul, right? Said he received a revelation but was told to not tell, right? So we know those kinds of things were going on. Um, so we have those, those sorts of, of examples. So not all special revelation was given in written form or committed to writing. Second, we know that not all of those inspired messages which were reduced to writing have been preserved by God's providence for use by His people through history. So when we're talking about, again, we're talking about the canon, we're acknowledging the fact that there were other inspired writings. But when we talk about the canon, we're just saying these are the inspired writings that God obviously through providence wanted us to have, right, as His people. So we know that there were other things Jesus said. We know that there were other visions. There were other prophecies. It's just we're talking about the canon. We're saying, or maybe to be more precise, we, we could say this, that the canon of the Christian church is constituted by those inspired writings which God has preserved for his people in all subsequent ages. So it's not just the issue of inspiration. It is this issue of preservation and providence, Right? For instance, we know that Paul, there's, there's another letter to Corinth, right? We don't have it. You remember that Paul talks about this, that there's, there's another letter? In fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about a letter that was written to him. He's answering questions, right? So as he goes through 1 Corinthians, he's actually saying, oh, and you had these concerns and let me answer them. But we don't have that letter, right? So we know these things existed, but what we talk, we're talking about the canon of the Christian church we're talking about sort of this combination of inspiration and God's providence, preservation, that, 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 that confirms to us these are the books that we are to live our life by, right? These 66, right? And, and, to, and to take one of these out is to take an inch off the yardstick. And to add something else to it, whether it's something that was written in the first century uh, for that matter, it could be that letter that was written by Paul that we don't have. I mean, I made this comment when we were talking about the New Testament uh, a few years ago. What would we do if we all of a sudden uncovered, like this week, had some archaeological dig and uncovered that letter? We would not consider it a part of the canon. <laughs> I don't think we would do that. I don't think we would look back over 2,000 years of church history and say that was meant to be in our canon because we would be wrestling with the issue of preservation in God's providence. So whether it was written in the first century or whether it's some new crazy idea out there that God spoke to me this week and told me to write something down for the church, right? I mean, whether it's these really off-the-wall things, the issue is this, 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 uh, this preservation or God's providence and the fact that, again, the church wasn't making these 66 books inspired they were simply recognizing them as inspired. And we'll talk about how that sort of process plays out. So what about the lost books of the Bible? Okay, what about these lost books? Well, there are no lost books 
uh, of the Bible. God has not lost any books. Okay? <laughs> I know, I know. I, I was watching, there was a show on a couple of days, and they were talking about the Sphinx and, and, and the, the pyramids and how scientifically just amazing how these things were even constructed. And this guy was speculating that aliens must have given these people, these ancient cultures, electricity because there was no way for them to do what they did apart from electrical tools. That's the obvious answer. So, so it's the obvious answer. So he's got, all these, he's got all these manual tools out there that would have been common supposedly in that day when those things were built. And he's just saying, can't do it manually. You can't do that. It's too precise. And so they had to have had a Home Depot, right? I mean, they had to have had a DeWalt uh, saw, and they had to have had a, a uh, you know, what are some other names, uh, Milwaukee uh, uh, drill or something like that to do this thing. And so he just said, so it, it, just, it just makes sense that, that, that aliens gave these primitive cultures somehow access to electricity. It takes more faith than that. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> so what about these lost books? Uh, well, the Bible does mention a number of books sometimes by name, that we do not have anymore, uh, meaning there are no manuscripts or translations of any of them. Of course, none of them uh, were inspired by God to be part of the canon or the Bible, and neither the Jews nor the, nor the Christians have ever accepted them. Sometimes a biblical writer will quote from these books. Uh, other times he just mentions them by name or description, but that doesn't mean that they are inspired. For example, Paul quoted from Greek poets. We see this in several occasions in Acts, in Acts 17, verse 28, for example. Uh, but, but, but nobody would ever say that those uh, that would suggest that Paul was saying that their writings belonged in the Bible. So just the fact that Paul quotes someone doesn't mean that he's giving affirmation to that outside source to say that's inspired. Okay? So most of these books were simply historical records, genealogies, royal archives, court records. Uh, others were accounts of wars and battles, possibly written by eyewitnesses, uh, uh, the eyewitnesses' account of generals or military scribes. Some may have been patriotic anthems or military marches. Uh, then there were those written by prophets sent by God. Nathan in the Old Testament, for example, was a true prophet of God. Yet some of his written prophecies were not intended to be included in the Bible. How do we know that? Because we don't have them. <laughs> you see? So was Nathan speaking for God when he spoke orally? Yes. Did he write any of those, down, those things down? Very possible. Were they meant to be in our Bible? No. Why? Providence. Right? Which is similar to the principle that some of the prophets in the Bible far more than they wrote, such as Elijah. So we know some things about Elijah's ministry. We know he was a prophet of God, but we don't have a lot of content about the actual message. There's not a book of Elijah that tells us all of these, about all of the things that he, he preached in, uh, like you would have for an, a Jeremiah or an Isaiah. They were inspired, you might say, in one way when they prophesied and inspired in a greater way when they wrote their prophecies down. So what are some of these books, writings mentioned in the Bible that we have a of our Bibles? Okay, so here we are. This is it, and we, we won't get, we'll just cover, maybe just cover this one. Writings mentioned in the Bible 
that we do not have as a part of our Bible. There's a lot of them, (laughs) okay? There's a lot of these examples. In the Old Testament, we have the books. So the scriptures are referring to these things, but we don't have them, okay, in the Bible itself. The book of the wars of the Lord, Numbers 21. The book of Jasher in Joshua 10 and 2 Samuel 1. The book of the Acts of Solomon in 1 Kings 11. The chronicles of Nathan the prophet. The chronicles of Gad the seer. The records of Iddo the seer. The annals of Jehu the son of Hanani. The the book of records in Ezra 4. The book of the chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia in Esther 2, 6 and 10. The prophecy of Ahijah the Silonite. 2 Chronicles 9, the visions of Edo the seer, the chronicles of Samuel the seer, the records of Shemaiah the prophet, the records of Hosei, uh, which is just a term that means uh, seers or prophets, the writings of David, king of Israel, 2 Chronicles 35, which might include some of the Psalms, but implies that there were other sorts of writings. And so it's talking about the writings of David, but it's probably something different than what we have in the Bible, in, in the Psalms. Oh, in 2 Chronicles 35, it also mentions the writing of Solomon. Okay, again, uh, is that Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon? Well, it could be that, but it could be some additional things, right? We have in, in 1 Kings chapter 4, mentions the Proverbs, the Songs, and Biology of Solomon, which may be the same as, as that previous one, the Wisdom of Solomon, may overlap with parts of the Bible books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, uh, the text says that they were spoken, but they may have been written down because they are numbered. And that's where we get this, where it says there were 3,000 proverbs, 1,005 songs that Solomon wrote, plus messages on zoology and botany, uh, perhaps scientific or maybe proverbial like in, in Proverbs. We have Jeremiah's scroll in Jeremiah 36, right? Um, in fact, Jeremiah 36 gives some quotes from it, but the rest was thrown in the fire. <laughs> in that chapter. So we don't have those parts. Uh, and then there's various unnamed books. Um, in Exodus 17, Joshua 18, 1 Samuel 20, Esther 9, some of which may be among those already listed or may, may even be a part of the Bible. We really just don't know. It just mentions these, these things, makes reference to them, but doesn't really call them any particular thing. That's just the Old Testament. New Testament, we have other, as I mentioned, Paul's other Corinthian epistles, right? So these would be things, again, that Scripture itself... Is, a, is making reference to writings, but the writings themselves are not in the Bible. So we have Paul's other Corinthians epistles. We have the letters from the Corinthian church to Paul. 1 Corinthians 7, 1, Paul mentions that. We have the epistle of the Laodiceans. Now, this is mentioned in Colossians 4. Uh, it was evidently a letter that Paul wrote to the church at nearby Laodicea. But the text simply says that they had it and not necessarily that it was, in, it was written to them. Some, some think it was a circular letter, possibly Ephesians. Um, others think it may have been uh, Philemon or even Hebrews. Uh, there's the pseudo-Pauline epistles. Paul talks about this in 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 where he's actually warning the church about the possibility that they have received a letter that has them confused about what they should expect regarding Christ and His second coming and the kingdom. And so Paul just makes a comment, if you receive these things, don't be, don't be alarmed. <laughs> As if these things were from me. That's basically what he's saying. 
So again, it's, you get the impression there's this there's something out there in written form that has gone to the churches. But Paul's saying, I just know that's not if it contradicts what I told you, all right, or what I have written to you. Again, so he's expecting them to compare one with another. If it doesn't agree with what I've written, what I've shared, it's not. Don't receive it. Okay, don't be alarmed by that. Uh, we have. Uh, possibly other other written gospels. Luke one actually talks about Luke and how Luke gathered all of these sort of materials to to, to study as much as he possibly could, so that he could he could put together his own accounting of the life, ministry, death, resurrection of Christ. And so, uh, he, he, there's he probably gathered gospels, <laughs> things that had already been written about the life of Christ, uh, to do that, which some think. Uh, Luke simply meant Matthew or Mark, right? That he actually had access to some of these Gospels already being written by those two. Um, of course, those who are, you know, again, to, to, to be very skeptical, believe that it refers to what they would call lost Gospels, that there's all these Gospels that are floating around out there that if we could just find, then we would have the real story about the real Jesus, Right? Uh, you have the tradition of the elders. Jesus mentioned, mentions this in Matthew 15, which was later written down by the Jewish religious leaders. It was called the Mishnah. Um, it's possible that many of these traditions were, were written in part by the time of Christ. Uh, so Jesus refers to this tradition of the elders sometimes as he's rebuking the religious leaders and the scribes and the Pharisees. Again, how they have taken those traditions and invalidated. They, they believed those or elevated those to the to, to the same plane as, uh, Old Test- as the Old Testament, uh, seeking or in the end tr- uh, trying to invalidate God's Word. We have the books in the parch- parchments, Second Timothy chapter 4, right, where Paul's, Paul's telling Timothy to bring these things, right, to him. Um, and scholars make a lot of guesses here. Some believe it was Paul's personal Old Testament in Hebrew or Greek. It was a copy, his copy of the Old Testament, uh, maybe copies of Paul's own earlier letters. So they were letters that Paul may have written and had, and he was wanting Timothy to bring those things to him. Maybe copies of inspired New Testament books by other apostles. So maybe these were writings by uh, other other guys that were writing at the same time he was. He had, Maybe he had access to those things, actually had copies of those things. Uh, maybe it was just simply notes, logs, uh, official Roman papers of citizenship, such as uh, we'd say are like a passport uh, sort of thing. Uh, all of those are examples of books or writings mentioned in the Bible that we do not have as a part of our Bible. Now, there's there's two other categories, and we'll we'll stop here for today, and we'll come back to this. Uh, there are non-existent writings. <laughs> if you follow me, non-existent writings that are not mentioned in the Bible. Okay, and you'd be amazed at how much ink is spilled over these things. Okay, but these are writings that are not mentioned in the Bible, um, and they don't exist. So the, this is where, where scholars are saying we think that these things existed, and that's how we got what we have in the Bible because the Bible writers took these supposed documents. And they use them for material to write what they wrote, okay? And the, and the speculation is just enormous, okay? But you be, this is where 
you'd be, I'm just saying, you'd be shocked at how much of this stuff you have to, again, wade through when you go to study a book like Song of Solomon or Ecclesiastes or Jonah or for the Genesis, you know. So when we come back, we're going to talk about what are some of those things. Uh, and again, we don't have time to go through all of them, but I'll give you what are, I think, some, the, the, the three or four most common. Um, because people will say, oh, well, you don't know about the so-and-so theory? You don't know that that's why uh, that, that's that's where Luke got his stuff, or or you don't you don't know where where, where Genesis came from. Oh, Moses didn't write Genesis. I mean, no, the, the, the Genesis was written way after Moses died, and it wasn't just one guy that wrote the Pentateuch, the the books of Moses, the first five books of your Old Testament. It wasn't just one guy; it was four guys, and we'll talk about that. Okay, the four different guys had wrote four different documents that we don't have. Okay? We don't have these four documents. But it's believed that way after Moses went off the scene, four different guys wrote, and then somebody edited all of this stuff together and took parts of this guy's and parts of that guy and the third guy and the fourth guy and repackaged it into five books. Okay? Major problem. Major problem. Why is it a major problem? Because as you move through the Old Testament and you get to books like Joshua, you know, Joshua talks about Moses as a man of God who received revelation, right? (laughs) You get to Psalms, okay? There's some Psalms that were authored by Moses and there are Psalms by David where David gives, gives who the credit for Genesis through Deuteronomy? He gives Moses credit for that. Oh, and then we go to the New Testament, and what do we find? That Jesus said Moses wrote those books. And then you get into the book of Acts, and guess what the apostles said? The apostles actually referred to Moses as a prophet, which falls in perfect with what we're saying. Hebrews chapter one, Hebrews 1, right? God spoke, how? To our fathers? By the prophets. And who was the first if you look at it from a canonical perspective, who was the first prophet? Moses. And then as you go from, from Joshua, you go into Samuel and Kings, major, we call, we call the major prophets a little bit different in the Hebrew Bible, but major prophets and minor prophets, basically that's what we have, right? We have God speaking through the prophets. Second Peter. Second Peter. So we come back, we'll talk about these non-existent writings, <laughs> that'll be entertaining. I was thinking about this. Not th- When we get to this, I thought, man, that would make an interesting felt board children's Sunday school lesson. Say, hey kids, today we're going to talk about Exodus. Now, I just want you to know Moses didn't write Exodus, but there were these four guys. And we don't know who they were, but they had these four documents, and we don't have them either. So we're going to have these little felt, we're going to teach the kids in Sunday school, we'll have a little felt board, and we're going to have the, the one, one, two, three, and four, and we're going to try to teach kids not to trust in the Bible. I mean, we're going to convince them that this is just a patch job done by a bunch of guys that we don't even know who they are and what they wrote. But that's where we are, folks, in the church today. We, 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 you would think that we wouldn't be, we wouldn't, people would not go after this stuff and believe it, but they do. And what's sad is when they find out that they have cancer or when they find out that some tragedies happen in their life or they're struggling in their relationship and all of a sudden they're crying out to God, I, I, I talk to them every week in counseling. 
their life situation is squeezing them and they want help. But when they come, they are so unfamiliar with what's in this book. It's amazing. In churches for 10, 20, 30 years. And you ask them, what is the gospel? I did this with a counselee. It's been a few years ago. What is the gospel? And they said, and this is a person been in church for 20 years. And their answer was, isn't that those things that are in the beginning of the New Testament? The, they, they thought I was asking, what are the gospels? Like, what are the writings? <laughs> Which they even said it with a question mark. Like, isn't, isn't that those things that are written at the beginning of the New Testament? No, the gospel. What is the gospel? And they struggled to define what it was. So we'll come back. We'll talk about that. And then we'll just give you the really, do you think that's bizarre? Then there's just this miscellaneous pretenders to the canon. Just things that are coming out of nowhere, but just people claiming this was written. And this comes all the way up to our modern day era, right? We have people, cults today that are saying our book is inspired our book is from god and they're putting it on the same plane as scripture of course you can't do that right that never works when you put something else in the same plane as scripture where does scripture go right right when you get into a debate about the bible and that extra thing they want to add which one always wins out that extra thing there's a contradiction there. You say, well, that doesn't line up with what the Bible says. Well, you know. <laughs> so it's not actually on the same plane. It always supersedes, it always supplants, right? Always supplants the Old Testament and New Testament. So we'll look at those things. We'll touch on the Apocrypha. Just, you know, why, why don't, why is it in, in our Bibles? Um, and then the good stuff. And I, hate, I, don't, I hope this isn't too technical and too you know, uh, say boring, but I'm saying it, it's, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of detail and it's hard to condense it all down in two Sundays just to kind of whet your appetite. But the thing to, is the application of this. And we're going to talk about that at the end of next Sunday. Just so what? So what? So we talk about all these things. Okay, we're convinced. What's, why is this such a big deal? And I'm just saying it, 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 it has a huge impact and influence on our, on our Christian life, day to day, week to week. Um, so we'll talk about that that real-life uh, influence that understanding these things has on, on us. Okay, so if you've got questions about this or where we're going, let me know. Uh, but the plan is we'll finish up this topic next Sunday. I'll be out one Sunday, and then when we get back, we're going to jump into Song of Solomon, assuming that Solomon wrote <laughs> that and that it belongs in our Old Testament. And it's as important as Galatians. Right? Yes. Hello, right? I mean, that what we're saying? There's not a canon within a canon. Okay? Paul's writings are awesome. We love them. But if we believe what we're talking about, what we're saying is that Ecclesiastes and Genesis and Malachi and Mark and Galatians and Revelation are equally authoritative. And that's why Paul said we have to preach the whole counsel of God. Right? Amen? Okay, guys, thanks for your time.